Dieser Podcast basiert auf einem respektvollen Umgang miteinander. Leider geht es im Netz oft ganz anders zu. Bis zu 5% der Menschen verbreiten Online-Hass. Lasst uns dagegen gemeinsam lauter sein. Wenn Liebe laut ist, hat Hass keine Chance. Werde Teil der Initiative gegen Hass im Netz der Deutschen Telekom und ihren Partnern. Auf telekom.com slash gegen Hass im Netz. Join the conversation. You're with Kate Talk. 25 minutes uh, before we get to the top of the hour. That's 10 o'clock. My name is Rabu Gilegan-Zelenzele, standing in for Clarence Ford. And now it's time for our weekly crossing to the naked scientist. That's Dr. Chris Smith, who is ready, hey, always, for all your science-related questions. Doc, good morning. Thank you once again for joining us on the show. Good morning. It's a pleasure. Doc, uh, the first question I'll give to you says, related to TB, uh, how does TB become drug-resistant and why is it so dangerous? TB is probably one of the most common bacterial infections that claims lives around the world at the moment. And we estimate that roughly one in every three people on Earth, yes, you did hear that correctly, one in every three people on Earth, so there are eight billion of us, has come into contact with TB. And a significant number will be harbouring it actively at any moment in time. And... The other important fact is that Africa is a major centre for TB. Sub-Saharan Africa accounts for the vast majority of TB impact because every day, and in the time that your programme is on air, thousands of people will, will actually succumb to TB. They will catch it, and similar numbers of thousands will die from TB. And it's exacerbated by other partners in crime, especially HIV, because if you weaken the immune system, and this means other threats to the immune system like HIV, uh, alcohol, drugs that suppress the immune system, poor nutrition, poor living conditions, these all exacerbate the problem. But the bug is extremely resistant. And once it gets into the body, it does various things to encourage certain cells in the body to take it up. So we can actually hide inside our own cells. That's the first point. And the second point is that it can wall itself off. So it sits in certain sites surrounded by an immune response that builds a kind of barricade to stop the bug spreading so it's inactive but it's not gone away and then periodically the bacterium can reactivate itself or become more active and spread from that primary site to other parts of the body and that's proportional to how good your immune response is so if we come along with drugs to treat tb because it's going through these phases of activity and dormancy and it's more or less active at different times if you take drugs to treat tb for just a short time if the bacteria are not active at the moment you're taking the drugs the drugs won't kill the bacteria and so you have to give very long protracted courses of treatment to make sure you have the greatest chance possible of cleaning up and effecting as good a chance of a cure as possible now what happens in many places is that for reasons of economics or supply or just compliance, because some of these drugs are not very nice, people don't take them consistently for the right length of time. This has the effect of exposing the bacteria to what we call either monotherapy, where you give just one drug, and rather than suppressing it hard with multiple drugs, which is our current mainstay of treatment, you just expose it to one, or you expose it to one in an ad hoc hit-and-miss way, which suppresses it a bit but doesn't kill it, 
And the problem with exposing bacteria to low levels of drugs that are not toxic in this way is it selects from the population of bacteria those bacteria which may have naturally the ability to grow through that antibiotic. And so you slowly enrich the population of bacteria that are both in the individual but also in the population because you're sharing bacteria between individuals, of course. And slowly you disclose clones of the bacteria which have the ability to initially be tolerant and then downright full-blown full, full blown resistant to some of these drugs that we're trying to treat it with. And because they're resistant to the drugs, when you come in and try to treat the infection with the normal drugs, you end up with untreatable infections, which then, of course, you're going to spread to other people. And slowly it, it spreads as a wave of infection around the world as people move around, they take their infections with them. And you've got resistant TB and it's become a, a really significant problem. And in some places we've got what we what we call multi-drug resistant TB. And in other places we now have XDR TB, extensively drug resistant TB. There are some forms of TB where we almost can't treat it. And in fact, because of migration and so on, I, I, I've dealt with uh, cases in our own hospital where we have patients that we, we have drug resistant forms of TB we almost can't treat. If you're just joining in on the conversation, you're listening to The Naked Scientist. That's Dr. Chris Smith answering all your science-related questions, uh, talking to us about TB and why it becomes a drug-resistant disease. In terms of moving on with your questions, one says, having lived in the UK for many years, I am an avid follower of BBC Radio's Four's Infinite Monkey Cage show. Could you please explain the physiological makeup of Professor Brian Cox as he appears to be ageless? (laughs) Uh, He probably got a very good plastic surgeon, but I don't know. (laughs) Okay. And coming with those or many of your other questions, we've got some voice notes to play for you, Doc. Good morning from Patrick in Seabrach. A question for the Naked Scientist, please. We just marked the passing of Raphael Mechulam. Dr. Raphael Mechulam, a researcher in cannabis actually in in the industry and in medicine our our hero passed what he discovered was a lock and key mechanism in 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 the brain neuroreceptors and he named it anandamide something that responds to the cannabinoids cannabinoids so i was going to ask you how do you think such a mechanism would have evolved in the human brain anandamide is an agent which looks to the brain like one of its own chemicals. Because in the brain we have what are called neurotransmitters. Nerve cells make chemicals which they secrete onto other nerve cells and those chemicals see receptors, which are chemical docking stations on those target cells, which when they bind to the target cells, these these transmitters alter the behaviour of that population of nerve cells. And some of these substances are excitatory. They make the nerve cell that they're going on to fire more. Some of them are inhibitory. They make the nerve cell that they're going on to fire a bit less. Others are what we call neuromodulatory. And they don't have uh, such an impact in the short term, but they have a longer term modulating or moderating effect on the behaviour of populations of nerve cells. And this entire suite of chemicals is active in our brains and they include uh, glutamate which is excitatory another chemical called GABA which is inhibitory and then drugs that work a bit like morphine the opioid family of of chemicals that we use as painkillers we have receptors there 
there are also receptors, as is being uh, alluded to, for the cannabis family of chemicals. Now, it's not that the cannabis family of chemicals existed in nature and we then uh, evolved a brain that responded to them. No, the brain already had receptors that use chemicals, a bit like the, the one anandamide, which was being referred to an artificial drug, which binds to those same chemical docking stations and mimics them. And when people go out into nature, you can find, because we're all living entities, plants and people, we share a huge repertoire of our genes and our metabolism between humans and plants, you can find chemicals in nature that just by chance will bind to some of these same structures in the brain and either activate them or turn them off. And I mentioned the opioid family. Well, if you go to, say, morphine, morphine comes from poppies. And you can take that agent and put it into a brain and it has a profound painkilling and in sort of intoxifying effect. Well, why would a plant need that? It, it doesn't. It has it for other reasons because it's targeting other things in the environment. Caffeine is probably the world's most consumed drug. Coffee plants don't need to have a coffee high and tea plants don't need to have a tea high from the caffeine in them. They do it in order to kill insects that try to prey on the plants. Those are natural insecticides. And because insect brains are a bit similar to our brains, unsurprisingly, we've got these chemicals which are in nature, which when you put them into the brain, work in a similar sort of way or do something in our brains. So it's that the brain has these natural mechanisms and signaling systems and we can find in nature chemicals that have either arisen for other purposes but which have the effect of activating or blocking some of these same systems in our brains or because nature has evolved ways to target other animals to put them off of eating the, the plant or attract them to the plant then because insect nervous systems and other herbivorous nervous systems are very similar to our own you unsurprisingly see that overlap there so things that work in those animals will work in us too and that's how you see this effect where it's not that we've evolved to respond to the cannabis plant it's that the cannabis plant happens to make something which also happens to have an activity in our brains ask the naked scientist dr chris smith any of your science related questions as he'll be giving you the answers doc i come from a family of fussy eaters i can't stand avocados my hubby can't eat tomatoes of our three ch children two are fussy but the baby who's seven eats anything you put in <laughs> front of him just like me can you explain this abigail and strand Hello, Abigail. The answer is that it's all down to personal preference. And part of that is our upbringing. If you see other people eating something going, Ugh, I really can't stand that, that's disgusting. It does tend to make you think it's disgusting and put you off. But babies don't have that disgust system wired up to start with. So they're very gregarious in what they'll eat in, in the same way that they'll play in their own poo. They're not put off by bad stuff or that they think is yucky. That comes in once you're about three years old. You're not so fearful of poo until you're until you're actually a few years down the track. And so babies really respond to what we tell them and what we do to them. And so you, you shouldn't really give babies anything other than fairly bland, broad sort of repertoires of food because you don't want to give them a taste for certain things such as very strongly flavoured or salty food because it might affect what they do and don't like later because they're learning how to use and interpret their taste system. But it very much after that is a personal thing. And a really good example of this is that there are some examples in the world of what we call conjo um, conjoined twins or Siamese twins these are where an embryo partially split during development and so you have two people who are actually joined at one part of their body and there's one quite famous case of two two young women who would were, were fused from about the chest downwards so they have one body and they have 
two upper bodies which are fused at the lower chest level and they when interviewed have told reporters that they have totally different preferences and tastes for things and uh, there, there was one that liked certain types of foods and the other one couldn't stand them these foods are going into the same stomach they share a stomach these two women and so it's very much down to the individual liking to something and not the other one and when one was ill the other one took the medicine for her <laughs> so it just goes to show that uh, it's, it's very much a combination of there are some things we absolutely are inborn not to like because they're very strong or bitter flavors and most of the things we don't we're programmed not to like with these very very strong flavors are poisonous in nature but other things we tend to develop a taste for and it's on an individual basis and there, there, the, there is one other example i can raise here which is we are aware of some genes which do affect the repertoire of smell and taste sensors we have in our nose and throat and one of these is dubbed super tasting. There's a gene which is more represented in people from the Indian subcontinent, which makes them really detest the, the flavours of certain things which are in uh, green vegetables, for example. So some of those strong cabbage uh, type flavours, they will not like those at all. And so they tend to avoid those. So there, there's evidence for to a certain extent of some genetic influence over your taste profile and taste repertoire that you do and don't like as well. I've got a voice note to play for you coming in on 0725671567. Good morning, Abs and Dr. Chris. My question for today is, why do we cry when we laugh? And I'm thinking specifically of the times when you're trying to stifle a laugh, and it seems the more you stifle it, the more the tears flow. Uh, I'm laughing now, Doc. Mm, everyone's, now. everyone's now kind of smirking and thinking and reminiscing <laughs> back to the last time this happened to them. A couple of reasons. One is that because we are very visual as a species we have evolved various communication mechanisms that are visual in nature we when we get angry go very red in the face when we're very sad we pull a sad face and we cry it's showing other people that you're at a heightened state of emotion and they need to alter their behavior accordingly one of the other things that we do though when we're laughing is you're probably especially if you're trying to keep a laugh in is you're going to screw your face up and you're, you're desperately not trying to let it out but you're pushing it in and you want to laugh and you're probably screwing your eyes up a bit in the process and as you do that a you squeeze on your lacrimal gland and duct it makes tears so you push more tears into your eyes in the first place but also you squeeze shut the drain that the tears go down in the lower part of the eyelid towards your nose so tears can get into the eye but they can't get out and into your nose which is where they normally go as quickly so they build up and they're more likely to come streaming down your face Doc, this one is is a, pers- is a it's a personal conversation. I mean, it's coming straight from me, and the reason for that is I want to bring it to the listeners also because I want to ask how they feel about public speaking, and you know what uh, some of the exercises they do to help themselves to get better at public speaking. The reason for this is I come from a family of four brothers, and all my brothers they absolutely despise public speaking, just like my wife. My wife she wants nothing to do with it. And yet my nine-year-old, or soon to be turning nine, this year daughter, seems to love it like I do. Is it a question of genetics or what happens there? I think this is very much uh, nurture over nature. We haven't found genes which make people good politicians or good speakers. But we, we do know that people become more confident because they practice. And the more you do something, the better you get at it. But we also know that there are differences between all of us and some people have a head start. So there will probably be in a population people who are quite extroverted, 
people who uh, d don't feel threatened in that sort of environment. And so they're more likely to go and do performative singing, dancing or speaking type things. And the more you do it, the more you learn nothing bad happens. And in fact, good things happen and it builds your confidence and you get better and better at doing it. And I can remember when I first started making radio programs, I would stress about it all day when I was going to do a, a live program one evening. And I would think, how does anyone who does this job professionally live beyond the age of about 40? Because if everyone's as stressed as I feel all the time, then this is not compatible with longevity. And after a few weeks of, of doing the programs I was doing, this is about 20 years ago, I found that uh, instead of devoting 90% of my cognitive energy to panic and 10% to what was coming out of my mouth, magically that equation reverses. And you have 90% of your cognitive reserve is deciding what you should sensibly say, and there's a healthy 10% going on worrying about making it sound good. And once you're in that space, nothing phases you. And, you know, I, I find it harder now to stand up in front of 10 people who I work with compared and talk to them compared to 10 million people on some radio and television programs I've done, especially over the pandemic. We're doing sort of radio and television programs for massive audiences that, that were in the multiple millions. And, and it didn't phase me at all. And you sort of get into this zone where you don't get panicked at all by that kind of thing so when i go and do public speaking events now i i can devote all of my energy to thinking about i want to make sure i make the right points in the right order and do it in a logical way and not get worked up about it but you don't arrive there overnight i got there by practice by thinking about what i wanted to do what i wanted to achieve preparing it in your mind and then having a clear mental template for what points you're going to make in what order and then because you know where you're coming from where you're going and where you're going to end up you don't get nervous, and it's just practice. Practice, practice, practice. To you at home, we're going to be having that conversation in just a few minutes' time. One last question coming your way, Doc says, yes, we talk about living on Mars, and we see many explorers looking for ways to get there, but will it ever happen? How many years will it take? And is there no better planet to look to? That's Aiden in Brackenfell. Hi, Aiden. Well, I think the first goal that will be achieved, the first objective, will be the base on the moon. And we are very, very close now to this becoming a reality. It sounds like something someone dreamt up yesterday, but in fact they are really taking big steps now to put a space station in orbit around the moon, the Lunar Gateway, which will be a jumping-off point, and then a settlement on the moon's surface. Once we're on the moon's surface, you learn a huge amount about how people cope with living on a place that's not the Earth and doing it for a long time and doing it in the sorts of conditions that you can experience on a remote body like that. Mars poses a bigger challenge. The moon is really close and so there are uh, fewer challenges to surmount to get there, but it's a good jumping off point because the next stage is, well, where's our next nearest neighbour that we could visit and stay on and not melt, Mars is probably the best prospect. It's a bit smaller than the Earth. It's roughly the size of the Earth's core inside the planet, so it's a much smaller body. It's not a very exciting place in terms of places to go yet, but it will be in the future, and certainly we want to put people on Mars because we want to go and find whether we can find evidence of life there, past or present. But the, the, the challenges in getting there include probably a journey of nine months through space, which will deliver significant doses of radiation while you're doing that journey to get to Mars. And so we need to come up with ways to mitigate against that. And then um, 
we we learn by getting down onto the surface and recovering people from Mars, how we do that efficiently. We can explore Mars in terms of those questions about past life and so on, and then other possible assets that we might be able to exploit in order to make life a bit better and solve some of the problems we have on the Earth's surface. We don't want to go the other way because Venus, although very, very close to the Earth, very similar in size to the Earth, has an atmosphere tens of times thicker than Earth's atmosphere. It rains uh, molten lead and the surface on the, uh, the sulfuric acid atmosphere. And uh, you could, if you had pieces of metal on the surface of Mars, of, of Venus, it would just melt instantly because the surface temperature is about four or 500 degrees C. So no probe. The statistic is no probe has lasted more than a couple of hours on Venus before it melted. So we definitely don't want to build a base there at the moment. But Mars is relatively benign in comparison. So that's our, our, our best next prospect. And probably uh, where, where previously you would have said, there is no prospect of this happening. Now people are realistically talking about this. And once we've got the moon under our belt, I think that will really accelerate the process to let's do Mars. And so I, I don't think it'll be that far away. Doc, thank you so much once again for joining us and enlightening us. Have yourself a super day further. Have yourself a super day and see you next time.